rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Hello everybody, and welcome to the second episode of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie Meyer, and I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Before we get started on this episode, I'd like to say I apologize to a couple of guys. Last episode, I did a lot of thank yous to all the people that were supporting me. Uh, two of the people whom I wouldn't even have thought to do this are John Wilson and Zach Henderson of Teenage Wasteland. They have a little link on each one of their episodes. If you're interested in doing a guest host spot, that you can sign up for it. I needed to know what I needed in order to do that because I thought that might be something cool to try. And once I got all these stuff, it turns out that they've got a bunch of stuff scheduled for a little bit. So it just hit me, well, I could try this. So here I am. So thank you to John and Zach. Again, they have a podcast called Teenage Wasteland, an ultimate Spider-Man podcast, which covers all of the ultimate Spider-Man stories from number one all the way to the present or the last episode they covered the ultimate deadpool story uh so again i want to thank them and um, also want to mention john has a another podcast called uh, amazing spider-man classics which he hosts with josh pertoni and donovan grant they of course are doing the same similar thing as to what i'm doing here uh, covering every issue of Amazing Spider-Man from Amazing Fantasy number 15 all the way to the present. They're almost finished with the Ditko era as I record this tonight, so make sure you give them a listen. Again, the links to these sites are on the recommended sites section of the website. Next, I want to do an email. We I actually got one, and I want to thank Michael Bailey for sending this one in. Uh, he writes, Charlie, I downloaded the episode last night and listened to it on a late-night crystal run. Very good start, sir. I enjoyed the episode thoroughly. I especially like hearing the dogs barking in the background, as that happens on my podcast all the time. And I just want to say shout out to Boo. It reminded me that this is a real guy recording from his home, and that to my mind makes for a better podcast. You handled the subject matter well, and the synopsis for both issues were highly entertaining, especially the part where you said all the thugs died when Superboy froze them in the pool. Well, thank you. Two things. One, you mentioned growing up in Laurel, Maryland. That caused me to perk up because one of my aunts lived in Laurel for many years, and many a weekend of my youth was spent there while we were visiting. She has since moved to Skaggsville, which is the same exit off of 495. So that made me smile a bit. Um, I actually lived in Laurel uh, for about 10 years, from about 1982 to 1992. Uh, I went to Bon Elementary School. The library there was great. It's one. It's the only library I've been able to go find that actually has comic books. I don't know if they currently do because I haven't been there in years. But at the time, like I mentioned last episode, they had comic books and trades and all kinds of stuff. And that was even in a time when there weren't many trades. I know that's also the first place I read Dark Knight Returns, which scared the crap out of me as a child because the only Batman stuff I'd ever seen at that point was the Batman... TV show from the 60s. So seeing this story, I was a little freaked out, and I didn't really like it at first because I didn't understand why it was so dark. 
and why Robin was a girl. So I just thought I'd mention that. Uh, let's see. Next, number two. What sort of microphone are you using? Is it analog or USB? The only reason I ask is that I found that a USB headset gives you much clearer sound when recording. Not trying to bust on you or anything, just trying to pass along some of the tips and tricks I've picked up over the past three and a half years. If you need anything, feel free to ask, and Jeff and I will be mentioning the show on, on the next episode of From Crisis to Crisis. Keep up the great work. Michael Bailey. Well, thank you, Michael. Um, actually, the headset is USB. I'm not a big fan of it. I am. I'm borrowing it from a friend uh, because at, right now money's a little tight and I couldn't afford to actually go out and buy one right just quite yet. Uh, this one, the microphone only comes around to about halfway across my face, so it's probably picking up a little more echo and stuff than I would like. So uh, when I actually go out and buy one, I'll try to get one with a longer microphone. Maybe it'll be a little clearer. But um, that's what I'm using. It is USB. It's working so far. Um, as far as mentioning me on From Crisis to Crisis, I want to thank you for that. Um, From Crisis to Crisis was one of the was actually the first podcast I ever listened to because I'm such a huge fan of Superman, and uh, so um, it's great that they're going to do that. And I thank you for that. And all the promotion is great. Uh, that reminds me, John Wilson also mentioned that he's going to be mentioning me on the next episode of Amazing Spider-Man Classics. So I'll be mentioned there. And um, I also want to mention Spider-Man's my favorite Marvel guy. He's probably number three on my list. Uh, Batman, of course, is number two. But uh, yeah, Spider-Man and then um, would be number three. Probably Captain America would be number four. I just really like Captain America. And then the list goes on from there. But this isn't a comics, well, it is a comic podcast, but this is mostly a Superman podcast, so I won't get into that here. Um, I did get a few comments on Facebook, and um, uh, mostly um, people supporting me and saying that it was a pretty good episode, and I thank you guys for that. John Wilson also mentioned that the audio is a little messed up, and I apologize. Um, again, this is my first one, so I'm still learning, and I kept wanting to go back and uh, re-record stuff when I've messed up which you may not hear it because of the fact that I'm trying a different way of editing this time, but I've already screwed up a few times this uh, this episode. But I figure if I keep it all just one recording, then it'll probably sound a little better once we get to the post the episode. So thank you for that. Um, I guess that's it for that. Um, we're going to start off. Uh, this month we're going to cover November 1970. Well, the issues cover dated November 1970. Uh, I do want to give a shout out to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics at www.dcindexes.com. I was turned on to these by the podcasts I just mentioned earlier. And this is a great resource when you're trying to find out release dates or who did what, when, and uh, orders of appearances and that kind of stuff. So uh, our first episode today is going to be uh, World's Finest Night, uh, Comics, number 198. Uh, cover dated November 1970 with a cover price of 15 cents, which makes me cry. Just on the inside, though. It has an on-sale date, or had an on-sale date of September 10th, 1970. The editor on this is Julius Schwartz, who, like I mentioned, eventually he will come, um, come to take over all of these Superman books. But at this point, late 1970, he just had World's Finest. And um, there are two stories in this issue, a Superman story, and then uh, there's a backup feature, a reprint of the Johnny Quick story from this golden age. 
I'm not going to be covering that because, well, it's not really Superman related. So the cover of this issue uh, is credited on Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics to Carmine Infantino and Murphy Anderson. I'll believe that for some of the characters. I will believe that for maybe the Superman and Flash images that are on the cover. By the way, I should mention before I get into the issue that this is actually the first issue of Julius Schwartz's reign on the book. And uh, he decided to change things up a little bit since... Batman had a team-up title and Superman didn't. Batman took a step back and let World's Finest become a Superman team-up book, much like what would happen late, what will happen later on in a few years with DC Comics Presents. His first guest star is The Flash. Now, like I was saying, Superman and The Flash, they, they do look like they could have been drawn by Carmine Infantino, but personally, looking at the other stuff, looking at the background, that definitely looks like some Kurt Swan art back there, especially the Batman. So... I'm not sure. Maybe they both worked on it. Maybe Carmine Infantino did like the layout and Kurt Swan drew the thing. We'll never know. Uh, but it is a it is a pretty good cover. You do see Superman and Flash racing across the uh, the screen, racing across the page. There's a large crowd. Everyone's rooting them on. For some reason, uh, Batman's just showing a peace symbol. But it's a pretty cool cover. The title of the story is Race to Save the Universe. The story is by Denny O'Neill. The art is by Dick Dillon and Joe Giella. And the, like I said, the editor is Julie Schwartz. Uh, we start the story in the apartment of Jimmy Olsen. He's just waking up, and it's an autumn morning in Metropolis, and Jimmy Olsen is just awakened with a large headache, mentioning that he just was up all night covering a political convention. So he goes to take an aspirin, opens the door, and the floor seems to melt away from him. And suddenly he finds himself falling landing on a chariot, a Roman chariot, nearly 2,000 years ago. As suddenly as Jimmy had fallen through the gap in time, the Roman centurion, who apparently is named Maximus Flavius, which must be an ancestor to Flav of Flav, suddenly finds himself downtown in the city of Metropolis. Superman, flying overhead, notes that there is a disturbance down in the street and is excited because his patrol was getting dull, which makes no sense to me. But So Superman tries to land, but it takes him forever. Meanwhile, the Roman chariot has thinks that the cars are dragons and starts attacking one of them. But Superman lands and tries to get him to stop. The centurion goes after him and tries to hit him with the sword, but the blade just breaks on Superman's invulnerable skin. Superman picks up this centurion and goes to fly him to a hospital for medical attention when suddenly one of the guardians of the universe, uh, the little blue men, of course, that are the bosses for the Green Lantern Corps, contacts Superman and tells him that they need him to report to Oa immediately. So rather than dropping the centurion off at a hospital or back on the ground or something like that, or even doing something like, I don't know, wrapping him up in the indestructible Kryptonian cloth cape that Superman possesses, Superman just flies off into space at super speed and cuts through its space warp, just leaving the Centurion completely exposed to the rigors of space, and he totally explodes. It's pretty cool. Actually, he doesn't, because that would have been a probably quicker end to the story. The Centurion does not blow up, so apparently he's a super Centurion. Uh, so eventually, uh, Superman finally shows up on Oa. They tell him that their sensors have indicated that the Arachnids have passed into space. Turns out that these life forms mooch, mooch, huh, move faster than the speed of light. As they explained to us, anything that moves faster than the speed of light 
interferes with the orderly flow of time. So there needs to be something to counteract their trip, their movements. Apparently, all these arachnids can be counterbalanced by two creatures of human mass uh, traveling in an opposite direction of the arachnids. And there's only two beings in the cosmos capable of such speed. That would be Superman and the Flash. Uh, now, Superman, of course, can survive space, but Flash cannot, which is pretty cool since we say Flash cannot, yet that Centurion made it all the way to Oa. So, um... The Guardians give Superman a large green medallion, which apparently will act like one of the Green Lantern rings and protect Flash from the rigors of space, as well as provide him a course with which to, ride, to run on. So Superman super speeds back to Earth, and uh, we see one of the Guardians deep in thought and shadow saying that uh, they didn't tell him that the medallion will actually drain all of the power batteries. So until the Flash finishes the task, they will be helpless. To me, that means that every Green Lantern in existence is about to run out of power, regardless of whether they're deep in space fighting a uh, sun monster or flying high over, say, I don't know, Coast City, California, or whatever. They're about to be without their power, which just doesn't seem right considering, well, I guess this is for the, to save the universe, so it makes sense, but I hope the Guardians have mentioned this to the Green Lanterns so that they can, you know, land. That's not mentioned in the story, so I guess we're just left to assume that that's what happens. So anyway, back on Earth, Superman gives him the medallion, also explaining that the medallion will also keep Flash from getting exhausted. And uh, we learn that Flash is going to have to do something with the soles of his boots, because, as the editor's note points out, uh, the Guardian power devices are neutralized by yellow. So if the Flash keeps his yellow booze, uh, they're going to go right through the green energy platform or path for him to right, race on. So Flash decides, hey, you know, while we're at it, why not have some fun with this? Let's make this a race. And that way, the fact that they're competing will actually spur them on to do better than their very best. Now, I can understand the fun in that, but I would think that considering that this is a, a task to protect the entire universe, that they would already have the inspiration and be spurred on to do better than their very best. But again, I wasn't born until 1980. So, uh, a few moments later, uh, Batman makes his cameo, since it is World's Finest, by starting the race. We get Batman and Superman, and there's places ready to go and Batman has his only lines in the book on your marks get set go uh, so before apparently before Batman's words have died the duo is already past the moon meanwhile back 2,000 years in the past Jimmy has been taken before the Roman general he tries to communicate them but it turns out that these guys only speak Latin and while he learned that in school he's forgotten most of it but there is an editor's note. Our resident linguist has translated the Roman speech into English just for us. Isn't that nice? So, turns out, the Roman general thinks he's a, basically a witch and reeks of evil. So he orders them as execution at dawn. So they take him away to prison. And Jimmy's left to wonder, how is he going to get out of this mess? In the time it's taken to do our little flashback to Jimmy, the guardians have taught the Roman centurion their language and do some plot exposition by explaining to a centurion and therefore us why they're running uh, in the direction they are. They've left our galaxy 
and have entered Andromeda in a counterclockwise fashion. And the anachronids are actually running or moving clockwise. So by going the opposite direction, they're counterbalancing. However, they're now approaching a dwarf star about 16 light years from Earth. And so far, they're still neck and neck. And they come across the anachronids who actually start attacking them for some reason. Flash gets hit and knocked out, but fortunately Superman is, invulnerable, is still invulnerable to them and uh, can fight back. But as he starts to go after one of them, he notices that Flash is heading towards a yellow sun. And while that's no big deal for Superman, with it being a yellow sun, obviously the medallion won't be able to protect Flash from the fact that it's yellow. So Superman does catch him and is able to shield him with his cape because, again, that's, you know, space. The anachronids have stopped trying to kill them and actually shoot at the sun. And that actually disrupts the nuclear cycles and the sun starts to go supernova. And so we have a change of letterers because uh, suddenly the writing gets bigger and diff a little bit weirder and slanted. Superman tries to wake up the Flash and Flash wakes up talks back to him and apparently and at that point we learned because I guess O'Neill forgot to mention it earlier that the medallion also enables them to speak even though they're in space and there's no air. Suddenly a hole in space opens up so they head for it and suddenly are separated and we follow Superman as he lands onto a planet in another dimension and the sun is donut shaped and it keeps changing from yellow to red. Just as it turns red we see a hand, which is colored normally, but appears to be a phantom hand because it is holding a stick. But you can see the lines of the stick through the hand, and it bashes Superman on the back of the head, knocking him out. And these four phantoms, who, at least one of which looks vaguely familiar, takes the unconscious Superman to the devourers to watch them die. About an hour later, Superman finally wakes up, and wakes up against a giant, looks like, it's a giant slug covered in tentacles and really big teeth. Superman tries to attack it, and at this point, the sun is yellow, so it's not too much of a problem, but just as Superman's about to make contact, the sun turns red, and Superman only hurts himself attacking the creature. And the creature finally grabs Superman, and he cannot break loose. About 100 miles from there, we catch up to the Flash, who's been running all over the place. Uh, he's already covered enough to enough area uh, for a planet three, si three times the Earth size and still hasn't been able to find Superman when finally he comes across the giant creature holding Superman. He goes to attack it, but punching it isn't going to do any good because this thing has a hide-like armor plating. So, using his scientific mind, because he is a Barry Allen, scientist. He guesses that the what I refer to as tentacles that are around the giant creature's mouth are actually stalks that might possibly be radar antennas because of the fact that the creature has no eyes or ears. So he kicks up, a, he uses his super speed to kick up a dust cloud to interfere with the radar and confuse the beast and runs up the side of the creature and pulls on one of the stalks. And it hurts the creature and stuns him enough uh, to, for it to drop Superman. At just that moment, the sun switches back to yellow, just in time for Superman to give it a big smack and punch the creature into the side of a mountain. This, of course, leaves Flash and Superman wondering how they're going to get back to their own universe, and Superman figures 
that the only way they can do it is to actually head through the hole in the middle of the donut-shaped sun. So Superman figures that they've only got one shot, and if they move fast enough, they can go through the hole of the sun without being burned to a cinder. He believes that the arachnids, listen, and anachronids came from this dimension, uh, but he'll explain that why later, but he believes that, that sun is the doorway to their dimension. And he says it better be, because they're not very the space warps are not reliable. So, as fast as they can, the two heroes race into the sky and head towards the middle of the sun. And they and Superman tells Flash that they need to make a, reach a velocity of at least twice that of light in order to make through without getting hurt. Uh, and by the way, that's about 372,000 miles per second. Uh, racing as fast as they can, they make it through the hole in the sun. But just as the sun turns red. There's an editor's note that, okay, Superman has flown into our sun before, so it shouldn't hurt him, but it didn't keep changing color on him, which is a good point. And they make it through the sun, everything's okay, and they continue their race. And back on Oa, uh, we have another plot exposition where the Guardian explains that they're doing, that they've escaped, but another cluster of anachronids are heading towards the heroes. The heroes decide that they need to suspend their race temporarily in order to, and try to catch one of the anachronids. Flash and Superman finally catch one and, and, and slow it down long enough to find out that it's actually a giant robot. Suddenly some, Superman notices something's going on and tells him to get away and suddenly the robot, it's hard to tell, but it looks like it just disintegrates, but it might be an explosion of disintegration, a disintegrating explosion. Uh, just based on the way the art is drawn, I mean there's uh, they're in space, but it's got a, a form of light around it, it looks like. It looks mostly like an explosion, but could just be disintegrating. It's hard, it's hard to tell just from the art, but Flash just says it's disintegrated. Apparently, Superman has theorized that this robot is built for super speeds, so if speeds we think are normal, it cannot function and disintegrates. Uh, so they decide there's nothing really much more they can do here, so they race off and to try to continue their race across the galaxy. Meanwhile, back in the year 15 BC, it's the next morning, back in the, uh, we've, it's, it is now the next morning, and Jimmy Olsen is led to, by the Roman soldiers to a tree. And much like the more modern day firing squad, a row of centurions stand there with a bow and arrow and pull back on the quiver not the quiver, but pull back on their bows and release their arrows. Just as super as Jimmy Olsen is about to get hit by five arrows to be continued. Now, first off, I want to mention, uh, like I said, the art is being done by Dick Dillon and Joe Giella. Now, Dick Dillon uh, is, mostly is mostly known as the artist on the Justice League of America book. A lot of people I know like his work. I know people who would have been picking up comics during this time uh, will hold it probably in high regard just because that's their version of the Justice League and stuff. Personally, I'm not a fan of Dick Dillon's art. I don't like the look of the characters. I mean, it's not bad art. I'm not going to say that. For one, the man cannot draw a Superman as to save his life. Uh, later on during the 70s, he would give most of the heroes these ginormous sideburns, uh, almost mutton chops, even though they, they don't have them in any other book in the universe, in the DC multiverse. So, 
I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm not a fan of Dick Dillon's artwork. However, here it actually looks pretty good. It's inked by Joe Giella, who was another artist I don't really like too much. Um, I mean, he's a popular artist. He's known for inking over Carmine Infantino during the uh, new book Batman phase when Julius Schwartz took over the Batman books. I just think he, he covers up their artwork with kind of his styling. Leaves enough that you can tell who the penciler was, but mostly, co uh, mostly covers up their work with his inks. And I just don't like it very much when the inking overpowers the penciling. But for some reason, and I've never seen this actual combination before, but this combination of Dick Dillon and Joe Gila here in 1970 actually looks really good. I am pleasantly surprised. Again, the S looks like crap. But I think Superman looks really good. I think the Guardian looks good. I think the Centurion looks good. Flash looks good. The action scenes look good. Jimmy looks good. I mean, I just, the art in this issue is actually really good, which surprises the heck out of me because I'm not a fan of either one of these people. Obviously, there's two letterers in the book. I'm not as good as some people might be with letterers of this time period. Um, judging by the way the letters look at the beginning of the story for the first 11 pages, I would say the letter would be Ben Oda, but they don't do credits in here, so it's hard to tell. I don't know who does the other half of the lettering. Um, I do know whoever it is is someone that was uh, did a lot of lettering, especially in the early 70s, because I do know for a fact that a lot of the uh, stories I'm going to be covering coming up, uh, especially the Superman issues, uh, once we get into the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, um, has lettering by this gentleman. <clears throat> Continuing on, though, uh, the story itself isn't bad. Um, there are a few things that I think are weird. One, we do have the problem with the fact that the Roman centurion is not covered up. Now, I don't know how much of that is O'Neill's writing or how much of it is Dylan's art, but apparently this Roman centurion's armor covers him enough that he can survive the rigors of space. On the writing side, I am not a fan of the fact that, um, like I pointed out earlier, Superman is flying on a patrol, says it's getting dull, and is glad for a disturbance on the street, even though it is something weird, like a Roman centurion in a chariot being pulled by three horses suddenly showing up in the city of Metropolis of 1970. Um, I do think it's kind of funny that the centurion... Um, starts attacking a guy's car, calling it a smoke-belching, ill-smelling dragon. Uh, I also think it's pretty funny that he attacks the car and apparently does no damage. He's, we, they, the art actually shows him hitting the, looks like the back windshield, but he's, we see that he hits it at least once, and the windshield stays intact. So whether or not this guy's any good at it, or I don't know. If this guy is not just not strong, or maybe windows are stronger than I thought, but I thought that was a little funny. Let's see, moving on to page six. There's a cool image of Superman when he takes off. I really dig this ish, uh, this image, um, other than the S, which I'm still nitpicking on. Uh, the costume looks great. Uh, Superman's musculature looks great. Uh, and again, it's just an awesome image. It still strikes me as crazy just because of the fact the, of who it is that's drawing and inking in. I I just can't get over that fact. A um, few panels uh, before that, um, they actually show the centurion who's looking a little dazed and confused. Uh, I don't know how Yella inked over that, but there's a shadow over half of the centurion's face. 
and with the way they color over it it really looks cool I like the effect on it um, I do wonder why the medallion that the Guardians gives to Superman to give to the Flash doesn't have a Green Lantern symbol on it it does have a symbol it's hard to explain it basically for the most part minus a couple details it looks like basically three-quarters or two-thirds of the Green Lantern symbol. As most of you know, I'm sure, the Green Lantern symbol looks like two bars with a circle in the middle. This has the top bar and the circle, but no bottom bar. However, it is kind of in the, she uh, the shape of a shield, like a cop or the, Justice, uh, the shield behind the Justice League of America symbol. So maybe it's supposed to be that. I don't know, but it just doesn't really make sense. Um, I, uh, page 7, I do like how they, even though... Batman's no longer one of the stars of the book. They do give him a cameo appearance, so he still is in so far every issue of World's Finest. I do like how it makes a ton of sense on page 8 that Jimmy, who suddenly just appeared out of nowhere, and his appearance also caused the disappearance of another centurion, so it makes sense to me that they'd kill him. Uh, back those days, things like that, this was it's witchcraft, so I mean... If they don't understand it, they're going to get rid of it. So it makes perfect sense that, that these guys would actually be scared of Jimmy, even though he's still walking around in his pajamas barefoot. Um, page 9, it does amaze me that in just that little bit of time that we've spent uh, following Jimmy's flashback, or even if you can consider there might have been a little bit more time, uh, the fact that they've gone so far and are now 16 light years from Earth, but that that was apparently enough time to teach the Roman centurion their, the Owen language. Now, I don't know about you, but I've taken about three years of Spanish, and I still don't know Spanish. I can count to ten, and um, I know how to ask if I could go to the bathroom. That's about all I can remember. The fact that this guy knows enough of the Owen language to for them to bring him up to speed on what's going on is pretty amazing to me. Page 10, I like that, uh, I think it's interesting that now Superman's going to start worrying about protecting somebody from from the rigors of space. Although it does make sense because it's the yellow rays of the sun. Let's see, moving on to page 12. The artwork here is pretty cool. The heroes get thrown through these hole in space and get pulled apart. They both end up being colored a dark red. Uh, and are definitely in shadow the whole time, although I do like that even though it's drawn badly, Superman's S symbol still stands out on his chest, even though that with the cape we could obviously tell that it's Superman and not the Flash. Um, also with this shading, Superman's belt looks like it has a yellow buckle, and but the belt itself is black, much like uh, it would look on the old Fleischer cartoons. The Phantom person that knocks out Superman that comes back to play later in the part two but right now we just kind of get left with that dangling plot um, like who are these phantoms a regular reader of Superman should be able to pick out the images of at least one of these guys turns out they all have a play a, a, or have a history with Superman and they will be revealed the next issue um, the creature that on page 14 that Superman wakes up to seeing it's a pretty imaginative creature. It, it's hard to explain. It looks like a giant anteater covered in tentacles. And it looks like it might have some feet. But, uh, in fact, uh, looking at it a little ahead of a little bit, 
I can see that it does have feet. So it is a giant, no armed, but covered, but has feet, ant eater with teeth, with no eyes or ears, but has these little antennas on his, uh, three on, on top and three below his mouth that he uses to see and hear. Let's see, moving on. Page 15, I like how Flash comes up with the idea to use his speed to create a dust cloud to mess with the radar. However, it does seem to me to be a leap in logic uh, to consider it's a radar-like antenna instead of just more tentacles. Um, I can't imagine that someone in this situation would be able to think clearly enough to consider that as an option. But again, this is page 15 out of a 21-page story, and there's, or I'm sorry, 22-page story, and there's still a lot to go through. So I guess this is just a plot along. Page 16, it's finally good for suit that sun turns yellow and Superman can smack the crap out of that monster. Um, I do think it's weird that they keep calling it a donut sun, but it doesn't look like a donut um, from the planet, so I, don't, so I don't know how they know it is a donut sun very well. It does have a cir circular pattern, but it just looks like a big target, rather, than, and there's no hole that you can see. So I don't know how they know it's a donut sun, but... Obviously, maybe that's a difference in the art over the, against the script. Page 18 is a beautiful piece of art. It's a full-page full spread. You see Superman and Green Lantern racing through the hole of a giant flaming donut. And there's going to be giggles from that statement because I said flaming, but that's okay. And it's currently a red sun, and so it's pink with red accents. It looks freaking awesome. Page 20 and 21, uh, I think, I, I don't know what these anachronids are, obviously. Um, I don't know if they've ever been um, mentioned before in any DC comic. Um, I do think it's cool that they are robots and that there is a mystery as to who created them. I also think it's pretty cool that they are not designed to exist at slow speeds or normal speeds. So who, obviously whoever made them wants to keep them a mystery, which deepens the mystery of the story. And we don't know how that ties into anything else. So this story is full of mysteries. And um, at the end of page 21 on the final panel, we see a planet, an orange planet, or maybe it's a moon. It almost looks like a photo quality picture. It, the art on that looks great, the way it's shaded. I like that a lot. And, of course, the cliffhanger on page 22 is great. you got to wonder how in the world Jimmy's going uh, Jimmy's to get out of this one. The arrow is literally inches away from his chest. There's no conceivable, what, conceivable way for, um, for him to be saved. The only people that could possibly save him don't even know he's stuck in the past. So this is a great cliffhanger. How will he get out of this? Fortunately, I know, so I'm not too worried about it. But... Uh, I get to leave you guys waiting for a week. Uh, moving right along, the second issue for the month is Action Comics number 394. Uh, this issue came out uh, approximately on September 29, 1970. Again, we have another cover price of 15 cents. The art on this cover was obviously done by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. The cover shows Lois in a cheetah print mini dress with long sleeves, but the skirt barely gets past her. Uh, Naughty bits. And we see Superman 
using his heat vision, which is colored purple in this on this cover for some reason, burning piles of money. And for some reason, Lois is telling him, please, Superman, you've got all the money in the world. Help these poor people. And these poor people are a child uh, with uh, wearing some what it looked like they should be nice clothes, but his shirt is untucked and his pants have a hole in the knee. The woman has no makeup on. And the man, it, a member of our armed forces, he's in a uniform, but he's using a crutch. Meanwhile, Superman is burning all the money and says, stay back. I've got a reason for destroying it. Uh, the first story of the issue is called The Midas of Metropolis. Uh, the story is by Leo Dorfman. The art is by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. And the editor is Murray Boltonoff. Uh, we start off one night in the Metropolis Warehouse District where Clark Kent interviewing Mr. Cyrus Brand of the, uh, for the Daily Planet. Uh, Mr. Brand is the richest business tycoon in the country and is doing his best to get the story because this guy is very reclusive and tries to stay away from the public. Clark Kent finally gets to this guy and he starts telling the story. Apparently this guy he considers himself to be the Superman of industry, a man who likes to have trophies of his of all his quote-unquote feats, has control of the largest corporations in America, the shipping, railroads, airlines, television, just to name a few, and uh, he wants to be the most powerful man on Earth. Suddenly, there's a room which shakes the whole room. Clark, uh, feigning fear, uh, runs out, changes to Superman, and sees that below ground, some men have tried to break into Brand's vault. Uh, they break in, start to take the money. A booby trap is activated. Iron bars come down, and they're trapped. Suddenly, Brand shows up through the hole that I'm guessing Superman, yes, that Superman made, flying through the building, and reveals that he is not stupid, and while he knows he's got a lot of money, he also knows that a lot of people will try to get to his money. So he's created the greatest security system money can buy. Uh, Superman, for some reason, uh, looks at the money with his x-ray vision and then flies off. Uh, the next day, on an offshore reef, and we have a ocean liner that is sunken, and the Tri-Oceana Corporation is trying to uh, salvage it. So Superman offers to help and picks it up uh, using only its anchor chain. So that means it's a pretty heavy-duty chain. Flies it back to the shipyard and lowers it so, it so the damage can be repaired. Just at that moment, Brand shows up again. Turns out he's the president of Tri-Oceanic. And he tries to thank Superman for helping with the boat. But before he gets a chance to say anything, Superman flies through the damaged hull, uh, opens up the ship's safe, and collects what he call, considers his reward for saving the ship, about half a million dollars. Brand flies off, thanking Superman's going, uh, saying that Superman will most likely donate it to charity. In the days that follow, Superman is called upon to perform his usual quota of fantastic feats. Uh, we, the examples shown are uh, saving an airliner with an engine on fire, catching a train that has gone off the trestle, and in a lightning storm, it looks like a lightning bolt has hit an antenna off the top of a skyscraper, and Superman catches it. But for each one of those rescues, he goes up and claims his reward. Uh, he gets the insurance reward for saving the airliner, a million-dollar fee for preventing the train wreck, and $50,000 for repairing the TV tower damaged by the storm. Superman takes the money to the Metropolis National Bank, 
and we learned that Brand actually uses the Metropolis National Bank as one of his secret holdings. Superman uh, eventually has too much money to hold in the bank's safe, can't even close it with his super strength, so the next day at a nearby empty lot, Superman actually builds his own bank called the Superman National Bank. And people start taking their money out of the Metropolis National Bank and moving it over to his bank, which of course means that Superman is more popular with his with money than Brand. And Superman decides that he's going to be a tycoon and be a better tycoon than Brand. So suddenly there's a war on. Next day at the Daily Planet, Clark and Lois talk about Superman going quote-unquote money mad. Later, Superman gives a $5 donation to the Wounded Veterans Fund, uh, which Lois gives him crap about because of the fact that he's got billions and he's only donating 5 bucks. Superman doesn't understand why Lois is upset because money doesn't grow on trees and he didn't get rich by giving it all away. Huh, reminds me of, what is it, Scrooge? So uh, suddenly the phones, uh, the phones in front of Superman start ringing and he starts talking about buying consolidated trucking and is trying to purposely top any offer made by Mr. Brand. So he's buying trucking, a copper mine, and an airline, just to name a few. And Lois runs off crying. Uh, in the days that follow, we get more. Uh, we see Brand looking at various editions of the Daily Planet, talking about the rivalry between Brand and Superman, and about how Superman is actually winning every time they compete against something. So next day, we have Brand trying to buy a hotel chain for looks like fifty million dollars, but Superman has already bought the hotel chain. So Brand goes straight to Superman and offers him one hundred million dollars. Superman says, okay, that's a good deal. Takes the money and leaves. And leaves a trophy of the buying the hotel chain. But suddenly, Brand realizes that there's no guests at the hotel. When he asks Superman where they all went, he has Brand look over in the other direction and out in what I guess would be Metropolis Harbor. Superman has created Paradise Island Superman Enterprises, which is a floating island hotel resort. Uh, the rival continues. Until one day, Brand is trying to purchase an oil field, and Superman arrives too late. So Superman uh, reveals that he actually bought some desert land from the Sheik the day before. Superman drills into the Earth at super speed, and when he flies back up, he's created a giant oil gusher. This giant oil gusher, turns out, actually went, goes into the same pocket of oil that was being used for, by Brand's new oil field, Suddenly, Brand's wells run dry because of Superman's gusher. So Brand offers to buy the new oil well that Superman just created. So since Superman decides that he could dig an oil gusher any time, he sells the oil well to Brand for a billion dollars. He gives him another trophy, one that looks like an oil rig. So Brand takes a helicopter and lands in a lead mine in the western mountains. And we learn that the money that Brand has been using to purchase all of these businesses is actually counterfeit money. At about this time, the oil rig trophy that Superman gave to Brand takes off like a rocket, literally, with uh, thrust and uh, flames from a rocket, burrows through the earth and so that Superman can see it with his supervision, and crashes through the roof of the mine, and, and it's able to arrest both Brand and the counterfeiter. Turns out that earlier when I mentioned that Superman just for some reason happens to use his x-ray vision to glance at the money, 
the radiation from his x-ray vision caused the fake caused the money in Brand's vault to glow. So when he reports those findings to the Treasury Department, they find out that one out of every five bills in circulation is a phony bill which can only be discovered using Superman's x-ray vision. So that means that there's no x-ray machines on Earth-1. Uh, so Superman comes up with this idea of becoming a super tycoon. And uh, by creating his own bank, he can check the large sums of money that are passing through his hand, weed out all the counterfeit money, and the government will replace it with genuine currency. But they still had to figure out where... Brand was printing all the forgeries. So Superman came up with the idea of the rocket because obviously he may have maybe doing uh, maybe printing fake money in place blocked by lead, which of course we learned he was in a lead mine in the Western Mountains. So he does the whole bit with the rocket so that he can discover the place. So he flies the crooks off to prison, the federal prison. And days later, we see Superman with a pile of fake money, burning it all down with his heat vision, much like we see on the cover of the issue. And Lois lets us know that he signed, up all, signed over all of his holdings to charitable foundations and hopes that Superman will forgive her for believing that he was a super miser. The end. Not a bad story. Um, the art is fantastic. Again, like I said last time, I'm a huge fan of Kurt Swan, Murphy Anderson, separately. Uh, I love when they're together when they work like this. The inking on here is just fantastic. It all, all of the inking on here, every image of Superman looks just looks very much Swan Superman with no, with hardly any Anderson influence. Every time you see Superman's face, that is a Kurt Swan Superman face. Again, this seems like one of those um, Silver Age stories where we can't give Superman a bad guy to go up against. So we have him fool the whole world into thinking he's a bad guy, he's turned bad, and yet it turns out he's actually still a good guy. Going more into the story, uh, page one, um, I like how they go ahead and set up the fact that this brand gentleman um, likes to collect the trophies of his accomplishments. On the second panel, you can see the man from a side profile. This man totally looks like Humpty Dumpty. And let's see the second page. Uh, pages two and three, the whole thing runs across both pages, and it's about three panels, plus the fourth panel actually covers the bottom half of both pages. Um, I think it would kind of give away his secret identity, the fact that it looks to me that Superman crashed down into the basement from inside the building. I don't know, maybe it doesn't necessarily mean that it's Clark, but obviously it would mean that someone in the building is Superman. Maybe it's just me. Uh, page four. I don't quite understand why Superman would just randomly look at money with his x-ray vision. I know I wish I could look through money sometimes, but it just doesn't make sense unless he noticed something about the money blowing when he was checking it out with his x-ray vision could explain why he, said, why he says the words very interesting in the last thought bubble while he's changing from Clark to Superman. I don't know. Uh, that part is not really explained. The, uh, when they explain it at the end of the story, they actually take this, uh, basically take a different angle of this image on page four of him standing there looking at the money with his x-ray vision. So if that's it, I'm not sure.
I do think it's pretty cool. Uh, page five, the art looks pretty cool when he's saving the ship. Although, and I know this is the 70s, but I would find it really jarring to have an ocean liner where the bottom half is yellow and the top half is a bright, or the top half is yellow and the bottom half is purple. I mean, I know the 60s and 70s had some weird color schemes, but that's just freaky. Let's see, moving on. On page 7, I just like sometimes in these pre-crisis books of watching Superman perform some of these super feats. Granted, some people don't think these are very dynamic, and they may not be the most dynamic thing you'll ever see. But watching Superman trying to close the safe door with his super strength, it looks like he's really pushing. It looks like he's really struggling. You can almost see the muscles t uh, flexing. The way his feet are, you can tell he's pushing. The little squiggly lines off his body shows that he's moving, trying to do it. I think that's pretty cool. I like the bottom two panels where they show him moving at super speed. Something about this era and Superman using gigantic... <laughs> it's going to sound weird, but Superman using gigantic tools to perform the job. Uh, we see uh, when Superman's building the or digging the hole for the foundation for, the, for his building... He is using a giant, like a giant bulldozer shovel, but he's just holding it with his hand and digging. I don't know where the pile of dirt ends up going that he's throwing. I mean, just watching him do that and then watching him build it. Kurt Swan draws an interesting Superman when he's building stuff. They show, he shows him bringing in blocks of concrete, welding stuff, pushing it together. And we do, and what, in fact, like I just said, welding do see one image where Superman is literally using his heat vision to weld the metal together. I don't know. This art is just, it just looks really good. Page 9, it's nice to see Lois and Clark actually get to interact in a regular Superman book. Granted, it's only for one panel, but it's better than nothing. Page 9 also, um, I think I, I noticed this um, just while I was reviewing the issue tonight. The dress that Lois is wearing on page 9 looks like the same dress that she's wearing on the cover of the issue. However, in the book, it's colored a solid pink all over, where on the cover it is yellow with orange spots. Now, I don't know if they did that on purpose. Um, obviously, they meant to color it this way. Maybe it's because of the pattern is just one of those where it would be too hard to separate the colors if they wanted this done on time. Although, I do have to admit, that while that might be difficult, they did a very good job of separating the red and yellow on Superman S. Fantastic job. Uh, page 10. I like how Superman catches him uh, by letting him buy the hotel and then one-upping him. The Superman image on the last panel of page 10 looks fantastic. That art is just great. It actually literally looks like they took a Kurt Swan Superman image from one picture pasted part of it in the corner of another comic book panel here. Page 11. I swear this brand guy is getting fatter and fatter. He's got like seven chins on the first panel. And the second, pa <laughs> the second panel, uh, he's holding up a trophy of a car, uh, which I guess is auto industry stuff. Um, and it literally looks like while he's talking on the phone, he's about to eat the car. Like it's a yellow car-shaped Twinkie. Uh, page 13, Superman goes through the lead mine into the open area below. Now, he flies through and rocks go everywhere. Personally, I would be worried. Now, we already see that the lights that are hanging 
are swaying in every direction, which means he's causing a disruption. Now, I would think that with these rocks, you're running the risk of injuring Brand or his money man or the machinery that they were using to print the fake money, which means that that kind of mess can mess up the evidence for the case, not to mention murder or at least manslaughter. So fortunately, nothing seems to get damaged by these rocks. Maybe off-panel Superman's using his heat vision to blast them before they can cause any damage. I know he's done that a few times. And um, he does it to glass, too, see Superman Returns. But um, we get to the explanation of how everything works. It's a, it's a good, pat explanation. It all seems to match up. Um, I can't imagine that they caught all the money, but you also have to wonder if Superman was spending all this time buying stuff, counting out all the fake money, what was going on in the rest of the world. I think it's very fortunate that while he was doing all this, uh, Lex Luthor was still in prison. Uh, Brainiac wasn't attacking, or any number of other villains or things was not going on. Toy Man didn't show up. Prankster wasn't around. He just had a full, I don't know how many days this was, but he had all this time where all he had to do was run this scheme. So that was pretty lucky, actually, if you ask me. Um, and then, of course, the last page, Lois is all worried because uh, she hopes that Superman will forgive her. Um, the next two pages, I won't go through, or the next couple of pages, I won't go through too much. The first uh, page ne uh, after the story is actually a little bit of a, what do you want to call it, a biography about both Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. The top of the page says it's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's Swan, dot, 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 and Anderson. And the one side of it has what looks to be a Kurt Swan uh drawing drawn by Kurt and then the other side of it has a Murphy Anderson picture drawn by Murphy Anderson and um, now I haven't seen a whole lot of pictures of these guys um, I do have the Kurt Swan uh, biography book and um, I, I don't know if it's just the way they draw it but Kurt Swan looks funny he's got he's really blonde he's got short hair it looks like it's combed back and he's got like a 1930s style mustache and he's wearing a bow tie so he's like a Jimmy Nielsen. I mean no disrespect to the man, may he rest in peace but this is just a funny picture of him. Murphy Anderson on the other hand looks dazed and confused. Um, now I have to say that I have met Murphy Anderson. He's a great guy. He's got a really really deep voice but um, I'll get more onto that uh, probably in a couple episodes when I start on the issues of Superman with Denny O'Neill but I have met Murphy Anderson. He actually signed one or two of my issues from the Kryptonite Nevermore uh, storyline. Um, he was very kind and very a very generous man. He actually talked to me for a couple minutes. Um, I wish I had been a little more um, brave and open and actually talked to him for a little bit longer, but um, he was very kind, and uh, I don't know, I liked him. But anyway, uh, so this page covers uh, little biographies on both Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. Next page is the letters page where they talk about Action Comics 390, uh, which actually, according to this, uh, had two stories in it. The first one was a Superman story called The Self-Destruct Superman, and the second one was a Legion of Superheroes story. And I don't know what all it's about, but apparently one of the characters is Professor Nerd, N-U-R-D. You can't make up stuff like this, folks. Okay. 
The second story, again, still uh, is basically the same team as the previous story, as far as editor, penciler, and inker. The story on this one was by Jeff Brown. It's called Requiem for a Hot Rod. One day, Clark, Superman, Kent, and Lois Lane take part in the Strings procession, which is basically a, a little bit of a race where they're driving antique cars. And we go in by the sound effects. We have uh, these cars are basically going and backfiring. Uh, sounds like some of the old cars off the uh, old Looney Tunes cartoons. And as they're driving along and leading this procession, this parade of old cars, Lois is driving and is having enough trouble keeping the car on the road. When suddenly, Coffin Crowley, aka the Death on Wheel, uh, Death on Wheels, or King of the Road, shows up in his hot rod with a big varoom and uh basically knocks lois and clark's car off the road superman uh, at super speed realizes he needs to make a ch uh, lightning quick change in order to save the car so using the cloud of dust that's been kicked up by the car going off the side of the road clark switches to superman and catches the car and then races up and catches all of the other cars because they've all been taken down when he switches back to clark lands on a branch pretending to have fallen there from the car. At this point Lois and Clark talk to each other and reveal that uh, they're supposed to be they're covering a story for the Daily Planet about a vintage car rally uh, but this little incident has shaken up all the cars all the drivers so they're calling off the event so Lois and Clark decide that they're gonna have to head back so they start driving back within their in their little car and check out the hot rods parked at an old abandoned airfield and they learn that it's been they see that it's been turned into a drag strip so they go to see if the if that speed guy is actually there they show up to see two hot rodders playing a game of chicken one of which is coffin crowley who of course they met earlier and uh he wins his competitor actually runs right off the road into a stack of hay and pays coffin the money he owes him uh, Clark ex uh, decides that he's got a backbone and starts talking about this. I and he says, I quote, Coffin Crowley, he calls himself. I tell you, this guy's a phony. I could prove he's canary yellow clear through. And Lois responds with a, just how would you do that? Everyone knows you're a weak-kneed jellyfish with a backbone of pure foam rubber. So Coffin shows up and says, what do you know? One of them squares I ran off of the road. So Coffin Crowley's a phony, huh? And so Clark says, and before Clark can say anything, he tells the men to put him back in his car, and they're going to play another game of chicken. So Clark, feigning that he's helpless, asks, tells them to put him down. So they get him in his car, and Lois says, no, you'll be killed. But, of course, these other guys are holding her back because that's just how they are at this place. So Clark's in his slow little car driving down the road, and... Coffin Crowley is in his death car, and they start racing at each other. Game of chicken. And actually, this is, looks kind of funny because you have Coffin Crowley with his car going vroom. And meanwhile, Clark's, Clark's car is just literally puttering along. So this is the kind of be the saddest game of chicken you've ever seen. And we start, uh, we see Coffin as he's reacting to the, uh, to this race and, um, starts off with confidence that Clark will chicken out. And then still has confidence that the, the gizmo, which we've never heard of before, uh, ought to be working by now. And then all of a sudden he's scared because Kent, uh, because Clark hasn't turned away. And all of a sudden Crowley is the one that chickens out and rushes into a bunch of haystack, uh, a haystack. Unfortunately, his car goes out of control. 
Clark, of course, stops the car and is whistling. Everyone, well, everyone thinks he's whistling, but it turns out the whistling is covering up his super breath, uh, which actually prevented Crowley from being in a really bad crash. So the, um, Crowley comes up to Clark and asks how he, how he didn't swerve like all the others. And Clark explains that he figured it out. There was the polished medallion on the front of Crowley's car that did, that did it because of the way it was shining was blinding people, which was making them turn away. Turns out Clark realized this because normally when people are playing chicken, the cars can swerve in any direction, left or right. But Clark noticed that both with Lois, the drivers behind Lois, and then the driver actually at the airport, um, anyone that went up against Crowley all went to the right away from the glare. That's how Clark knew what to do. Now the question is, how did he go against it? Uh, turns out he had dark glasses on when he drove. So shortly later, Clark and Lois are driving along in their old car, and a motorcycle cop pulls him over. And... Clark is upset because he was driving, and he says it couldn't have been speeding, and the guy's like, no, and this thing, you're holding up traffic. He was only doing a fast 20 miles per hour on the parkway. So, taking a side road, we get a nice little closing scene uh, where Lois tells Clark that Superman would have been proud of the way he handled Coffin, uh, but since he got a ticket for being too slow, he's a born loser. And, of course, Superman has one of those nice ending tags. Superman, getting tagged for slowing up traffic. If Lois ever knew, I'd never live it down. Now, this story I actually like a lot. Now, there's a combination. Of, it's a nice short story. It's an eight-page story. Uh, the art on it, of course, is still Anderson and Swan. And it's really good. The same detail they had in the beginning. The characterizations. Now, Lois, at one point, Clark seemed to be seems to be a little bit out of character, but it's later explained why he's doing it, so it makes sense. Uh, starting off on page one of this story, we do see Coffin Crowley cough, uh, causing mayhem. I like the design of his car. Now, I don't know what hot rods what hot rods look like in real life back in these days, but basically, what we have it looks like. Um, it's a hot rod. It looks like it might have been a hearse at one point. The back part of it, I don't know if there's actually a coffin in there, but the back part of it um, has curtains. It looks almost like a stage, like like part of a stagecoach, uh, and it's got skulls on it, and it's pretty cool. Although coffin does use a pink helmet, kind of girly, maybe not big a deal back in this 1970, but these days he'd probably get beat up for it. Page two. Uh, it's interesting how Superman figures out a way to be able to change the Superman and also come up with an excuse for how Clark can be missing all at the same time. And again, we get smoke. Now, I don't know how much smoke these things, these cars kicked up, but whatever works. Um, it's a little hinky here, or honky, or hooky, or however you want to say it. But Superman does manage to catch all the cars. And it's really cool. I like how they do this. It looks like Swan actually used different action shots that you have, action poses that you would have seen in the past. Um, on page three, when he's catching the three other cars, the first uh, panel looks like it could have been a Wayne Boring version of Superman when he's taking off almost. Uh, this, the middle, uh, when he catches the second car in the middle of the panel, uh, looks like he's running towards us. And the last panel, he's just standing there catching it like he's just, you know, being really super. It, it's really, it's pretty cool and dy dynamic, I think. And then, of course, the second panel, we learned that Clark got caught, uh, quote-unquote, got ca caught in a tree. So 
secret identity is still intact. After that, I don't know if they're supposed to be going in a different direction. But considering these cars can only go about 20 miles an hour, I think it's interesting that if they are in fact heading back to wherever they started from for this rally, that Lois and Clark have come in completely left in the dust. On the fourth panel, they're supposed to be driving back and there is no other traffic on the road that they are on, which means either they're heading in the opposite direction or these other cars are a lot faster in and therefore they stinks that they got stuck behind Lois and Clark's car. That's all I'm saying. So they show up at this abandoned airfield. Uh, on page four, um, Lois and Clark watch the game of chicken. And, of course, no one notices. All these youngsters don't notice anything. But um, Clark decides to pretend he's a John Byrne version of Clark and says something loud to, you know, actually... I say this like he's got a backbone. He really doesn't hear. He's just saying something. He's just saying his thought out loud. He has done this before, and when he realizes that the person heard it, he usually is like, um. So I don't know if it's a mistake in his secret identity that he would normally have to cover up later, but in this instance, he makes it work for him. My probably my favorite panel would be the bottom three panels. So I guess it'd be my favorite panels. At the bottom of page five of this story, we're looking at Coffin Crowley. We're looking straight at him during the race. Now, the first image, he's got all the confidence in the world, gritting his teeth, and it looks like he's going to kick some butt. The second image, he's still, he's not gritting his teeth anymore. It kind of looks like he might be biting his lip, but he's still showing a lot of confidence in his face, like he knows he's going to win. The third image, totally opposite of the last two, his mouth is open. And he looks like he's confused and worried. And he's and basically he's saying, oh, crap. And, of course, we see the end of the race. Suddenly, Clark's suit changes. Previous pages, it was kind of a reddish-orange. And on page 5, each appearance in this on this page, his, un, his undershirt turtleneck has gone from white to yellow. And the jacket has gone from, like, a reddish-orange to a light orange okay and then Clark exposes Crowley's secret and on the page seven his undershirt turtleneck thing has gone back to white and the jacket has gone back to the red um, I do like this little gag at the end on page eight where he actually gets pulled over for going too slow that's just pretty darn funny um, and that brings us to the end of that story uh, I like this story again like I said um, it's just a fun little story. And how often, um, when it doesn't say private life of Clark Kent, do you get a story from this era without Superman? Granted, he was in, let me look back up a little bit, a couple pages. Superman shows up in other, well, okay, if you want to count it, technically he's in the first panel of the story because he's on the side that says drive safely, speed as a killer. But that's a billboard. He's literally in one, two, three panels. Granted, that's three times as many panels as, well, no. Actually, he, Clark actually had more panels than that in the first story of the, of this issue. So, I guess, um, now granted, this issue, to, this part, this story doesn't have as many pages, so we can't go by that. But I do like that this is mostly a Lois and Clark story. This is the earliest, um, this is the most lowest we've seen so far, obviously, and 
in three comics. It's the most of Lois we've seen so far. It's a short little story. It's a short, fun little story. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, the fun, uh, one of the pages in this book also has a direct current. And according to this, it's actually brought to you by E. Nelson Bridwell. And um, I would go into that, but I don't know. I'm going to leave this to everyone out there that listens um, to this episode. Uh, please email me or leave comments at the bottom of the page uh, at the episode posting. Now, I know uh, podcasts like Tales of the JSA and stuff actually go through and cover other issues of other books that are going coming out during that course of that month that they're talking about in the in their in that current episode. I know um, from Crisis to Crisis does that, um, and I, I definitely know Tales of the JSA. I I know um, Teenage Wasteland does that for the other Ultimate books that come out during the months that they're talking about. Now, my idea was I was just going, because I don't want to over uh, retread stuff that has been done, um, although I don't think anyone has covered this early in the pre-crisis era, um, I wasn't going to go over any of that, uh, any of the other books. Um, I was going to tell you what happens in the other super books, like I did last episode, but if you want me to go over the other books during this era, uh, please let me know and I will do so. Uh, this is early 70s, so there are some pretty different books that you wouldn't be used to hearing about. Um, in fact, I'll even just go ahead and tell you some of the books in this one, and we'll see what happens. But I know this one, um, Sergeant Rocks and Our Army at War 225, looks like we've got a special issue of Wonder Woman. I don't know if it's, uh, and this is during the era where she's lost where she doesn't have her powers anymore. We have Superman, uh, Superman. Of course we have Superman. We've got some Flash. Now, some oddities that you don't hear about later on, but we've got an episode of Jerry Lewis, The Adventures of Jerry Lewis, Binky's Buddies, which is kind of done in the style of an Archie book. Looks like Archie. Uh, what else we have? Uh, Young Love, Debbie, Falling in Love, Girls Love Stories. Uh, the Three Mouseketeers, which is actually is a, looks like a cartoon, more of a cartoony type of comic book. Um, the cover shows a cat activating a mixer, and we've got three mice on it. One of them's wearing basically nothing. Another one's wearing a t-shirt and a baseball cap, and the other one looks like he's wearing a sailor suit. Uh, but I've got to admit, for 15 cents and 32 pages, um, the thing does have four different stories and it was edited by Dick Giordano so strange um, Hot Wheels had a comic book at this time uh, and the cover artist on this was actually Alex Toth of Hanna-Barbera fame and a lot of other fames um, that's some of the weird stories uh, the different comic oh there's also Swing with Scooter which is another Archie type book and, of course, there's the usual stuff like House of Mystery, Flash, Justice League, Our Fighting Forces featuring the Losers, uh, Phantom Stranger, uh, Superman, Justice League, Batman, Detective Comics, Super, uh, and the others. Um, I do want to – oh, Teen Titans. I do want to mention the Superman books a little bit more. Uh, there is Adventure Comics 399, which features a Supergirl story. 
And again, she's wearing a different costume than she was wearing the previous issue. And her story is called Johnny D. Hero Bum. Although on the cover, the hero, the word hero is crossed out and with bum written under it. And it looks like it's uh, Johnny is a cop-out football player. Uh, Supergirl's scolding him. I have not read that one, so I can't really tell you much about it. I apologize. This month also saw Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane, number 106, the infamous I Am Curious Black, where Lois, um, at least temporarily, goes from being a white woman to a black woman. Now, this month, there should have been a Jimmy Olsen issue, but I am not saying it. In fact, no, you know what? There was not a Jimmy Olsen issue this month. Jimmy uh, did not come out 12 months a year. Uh, back during this time, some of the books only came out about 10, to, uh, 10 months in a year. I know Superman was only coming about coming out uh, 10 months. Uh, apparently, Jimmy was. I guess Jimmy was too. I don't like again. I don't know much more before what I'm covering, but I do know that Jimmy did not come out this month. Which, if you think about it, kind of sucks because we get a first issue with Jack Kirby introducing stuff i know the issue ended on a cliffhanger but the next month we don't even get an issue so you have to wait two months to find out what happens next which some books just come out that way but it kind of is bad timing it you almost wish they would have done a reprint another reprint issue that that month and waited on jack kirby's stuff for the next month but i mean what are you going to do so um i guess that's it um, I do want to thank all the people that have commented so far again, and, and again, thank you to Michael Bailey for writing in. I want to thank everyone who has supported me. Uh, it's been a great experience so far. I'm really excited about what I'm doing here. I hope this issue, this episode comes off a lot better than the first one. Um, I've been coming up with a lot of cool ideas for this show. Unfortunately, most of them don't. Um, won't be anything that I can implement until several, several episodes down the road. And I'm talking about episodes that will be taking place when I'm covering the late 70s. So this is going to be a while. But I, I am in this for the long run. I plan on going all the way through 1986. I've even been thinking about what I might do after that. Um, but, of course, that all depends on what exactly is going on at that point um, in the podcasting world. But anyway, I want to thank you all for listening. Come back next week where we will be covering Action Comics 395 and World's Finest uh, 199. And then, of course, the next month, the next episode after that is the big, is going to be one of the big episodes where we not only will have World's Finest 200, but we'll also be throwing Superman into the mix with number 233, the first part of Kryptonite Nevermore. So I hope you will join me for that. Um, as all, again, hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. See you next time on Superman in the Bronze Age. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. You can write to the show at umbc81 at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show two ways, via the RSS feed at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com or via iTunes. Also, if you like this show, make sure you check out the blogs and podcasts listed in the recommended sites section. And be sure to check out my reviews of other classic Superman comics at www.supermanhomepage.com. Superman and all related characters are copyright DC Comics. Also, any images or music used for this blog or podcast is purely for entertainment only. 
I do not make any money from this show. Thank you again for listening, and God bless. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man of steel and more supermanhomepage.com